Could you hear it? Yeah, good, yeah. It was uh, kind of came that way, and so we couldn't really adjust it. But uh, today our topic is relevance. We're going to be talking about that. So I'm going to um, go ahead and uh, pray and then jump on in and uh, see what God has for us. Father, we are, we're here today. We're just excited to be here. It's a beautiful day. And we're excited what you're doing in our church, the way you're speaking to us as a church week by week and kind of unpacking this, this vision for our future. And so we come today, Lord, because it's all about the encounter, that we come to meet with you. We come to to meet you in worship. We come to meet you in your word and, and to hear you speak. And so we pray today that you'd speak. You'd speak loud. You'd speak clearly. Pray you'd be with me. Give me freedom as I teach that I could just speak the way that you would want me to. And together, by the end, the time we're done, that we would, we would all have heard from you today. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today. It's, uh, it's the fall of the year. Uh, September, October, that area. The harvest is, is, is uh, come and gone. Uh, the winter will soon be here in a couple, in a couple months. And, and he's been in the, in the northern province of the country. Uh, he's been staying away from the south because in the south, uh, there's a price on his head. And, uh, and yet the time has come where he needs to go south to the capital. And so he gathers up his men. He travels south. And when they get to Jerusalem, it's during the seven-day feast, uh, the harvest feast that they have every year. And so he doesn't go public right away. He lies low, just kind of listens for what's happening in the nation. And uh, sure enough, there's, uh, he's the talk of the town. Everyone wants to know, will he show up? Uh, will, he, will he come? Will he speak? And, and, and some are for him and some are against him. And, and the, the crowd is split, but no one's really speaking up publicly because they all know that the leaders are planning to take him out. The leaders have made the decision, he's too dangerous, we need to kill him. And so everyone's kind of lying low so they don't get caught in the political crossfire. And uh, so about three, three or four days into the seven-day feast, halfway point, he decides the time has come out to come out from out under the radar and to go public. And so he heads to the, the huge, massive temple court area that had been built by Herod the Great, one of the, the wonders of the ancient world, and he, and he begins to teach. And, and the word's out that Jesus is back. And, and the rumor mill begins to, to churn, and pretty soon the crowds are coming, and everyone wants to hear him. People are a little confused, though, because everyone knows the leaders want to take him out, and yet here he is now, day after day, he's teaching, and, and they're not taking him out. I mean, the, the crowd begins to wonder, could they have changed their mind? Maybe he really is the Messiah. Maybe he's the one we're to be looking for. After all, he's done all these miracles. And the word gets back to the leaders that, that his movement is growing, the, the crowds are moving towards him. And, and so they decide the risk of arresting him and starting a riot is less than the risk of, of, of just kind of getting him off the scene and letting his movement grow. And so they call in the, the big, tough temple guards. These were the trained policemen, the, the, the trained law enforcement officers of the day for the temple court area. They were used to, to quelling uh, the, the kind of uh, crazy crowds and riots, big, tough guys, experienced guys, kind of the SWAT guys of the day. And, and so they send them out. They give them the orders. We want you to go and arrest this man. Now, that shouldn't be tough. I mean, he's unarmed. He's got a few followers, they're all unarmed. It's obvious where he is. Just follow the crowd, it's going to lead there. He's out in the middle. And so this is not a tough job, and yet as the leaders are waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting back temple, they're, they're waiting, and they're not coming, not coming. And finally they come back, and they come back empty-handed. Hmm. Today we're continuing this series that we've been in for the last three weeks. And for those of you who are brand new, it's a series that's called The Movement at Rocky Peak. It's a series about our vision, our values, our strategies that we believe God's giving us uh, to lead us into our future. 
And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you, you kind of know the drill. Every week we start by a quick review of, of our vision statement, kind of as a way of getting at the vision. It's there in your note sheet if you want to take a look at it. That, uh, that our vision as a church is we want to unleash a, a movement of, of passionate Christ followers who are doing four things. We're pursuing God, so he's our, our number one love, our top priority. We want to please him at all costs. We're uh, loving people in, in radical ways, like God has loved us. We're serving sacrificially. We believe that God has gifted each one of us uniquely with life experiences, spiritual gifts, and so on to make a difference in this world. And then finally, he's called us to share Christ, that when we become a follower of Jesus, we become a part of his movement. And it's our job to help expand the movement and to share the message of Jesus with those who have never heard. And then the, the following two weeks, uh, that what we came back is we began to talk about our core values. In this series, we're going to be unpacking seven of our core values. And so uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the first one there that's on your note sheet, the word, embracing the truth. And uh, we, we saw that Jesus was a man of his word, of the word. And so if we want to be part of his movement, that as a church, we have to be knee-deep in the word, that, that the word is the path to life. It's the, the source of truth. It's the key to our growth. And then last week we talked about authenticity. Remember that. That, uh, that God calls us to a relationship that's real, that's honest, that's genuine. It's not fake. It's not phony. It's not superficial. And, and then he calls us to learn how to be honest with himself and with ourselves and with God and, and with one another. And he calls us in this deeper relationship. In fact, the very first step to spiritual growth is to learn to be radically honest with ourselves. Remember that from last week. Well, so today we come to our third core value, and it's the core value of relevance, reaching the culture. Now, of course, this, this flows from our, our vision statement. Uh, we saw that to be a passionate Christ follower, that means we're going to be doing four things. We're going to be pursuing God, we're going to be loving people, we're going to be serving sacrificially, and we're going to be sharing Christ. And so you remember the last thing that Jesus said before he left planet Earth, he turns to the leaders of his movement. He says, here's your job. I want you to go into all the world and take the, the message about me to everyone. And uh, I want you to recruit new followers. I want you to baptize them once they decide to follow as they step over the line. And, and then I want you to teach them to obey everything that we've done. And so, so we believe here as a church that we believe that the message of Jesus is the most important message that the world has ever received. Right? And, and then it's our job to take it to the world, but that we believe that God's called us to, to take it in a way that culture can relate to. That, that this, me, this message of Jesus, that every, cult, every culture at every time, every generation has to translate it so that it can relate to their culture, so they can, they can hear it and understand it. Now, this value, as in all the seven values, flows from Jesus himself. As if you study his life and teaching, Honestly, he was a master of relevance. Uh, amazing message, but also amazing messenger. Like he knew how to take the message and to share it in the language of the people in a way people could get it. They could, la they could latch on and they could get it. And so you see that in the opening story we started out today. Um, you know, Jesus is in the north of the country. It's about halfway through his ministry career. And uh, he's, he's, he's doing his teaching up in the north by the Sea of Galilee. And... Uh, He's staying away from the south, the capital, because every time he goes there, his life's in danger. 
And yet he knows he needs to get some more exposure there. So during the seven-day Feast of Tabernacles, which is a harvest feast that happens in September, October every year, he travels south with his men. When he first gets there, he lies low under the radar. He doesn't want people to know he's there. The scuttlebutt around town is that some are saying he's a great teacher, we need to be listening. Others are saying he's a dangerous man, I'm not so sure. But everyone knows that the leaders have decided to take him out, that he's too dangerous. So everyone's kind of lying low, no one's going too public about him for fear of getting caught up in the crossfire. About halfway through the week, uh, Jesus emerges, goes to the huge temple courtyard and starts publicly teaching. The word goes out, Jesus in town, crowd gathers as always and he begins to teach and as always he's amazing. Just an amazing teacher. And so what happens is the religious leaders are now in a bind. If we arrest him, it might be a riot. If we don't arrest him, uh, the whole world's going to go after him. And so uh, they're, they're stuck. And they, so a couple days they let him teach. And the longer they let him teach, the more the crowd's convinced, like, hey, maybe the leaders have changed their mind. Maybe he really is the Messiah. I mean, he's doing these miracles. And so now the leaders are freaking out. we got to do something. This is getting out of control. So on the very last day of the feast, they call in the temple police, and, and they send them out to, to, to get Jesus. Now, again, Again, like I said, should be an easy matter. These are like the SWAT guys. You know, these are tough guys. These are used to, uh, you know, quelling riots and just dis you know, disturbances. I mean, they know what they're doing. And so it should be an easy matter. He's in the public square. He's right there. Everyone can see him. Uh, all you need to go, go make the arrest and then bring him back. And so now the leaders are back wherever they're hiding out, waiting for them to come, and, and he's not coming, and he's not coming, and they're getting, well, like, what's happening? And they're looking at their watches they don't have yet because they haven't been created, and, and they're like, like, what's going on here? You know, it's like, like, why, like, where are these, you know, like, what's taking so long? It should have been here. It's, 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 just, it's not that far. It's just gone. And, and so there's, and, and all of a sudden, the guys show up again, and, and here comes the temple garden. They come back, and they, they're just empty-handed, and the leaders are like, what, what's up? Like, oh, what happened? And they're like, uh, 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 let's see what they said. Chapter 7 of John. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and we're going to look at a couple verses, verse 32 to start with. John, in your New Testament, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you put it, get to Romans, put it in reverse. Acts, uh, John chapter 7. So we're just going to read a couple verses. I want you to see this for yourself. It's so remarkable. Chapter 7 and verse 32. The Pharisees, they're some of the spiritual leaders of the nation. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. So the crowd was starting to whisper like maybe he is the Messiah after he's doing these miracles. And so they're like, man, we've got to stop this. So the chief priests, so this would be the lead priests of the nation and the Pharisees, they sent the, these temple guards to arrest him. Now skip down to verse 45. And so when the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, his leaders, they asked him, why didn't you bring him in? And this is great. Uh, you know, no one ever really spoke the way this man does. <laughs> this is like sending a SWAT team after a single mom. And they come back. She's amazing. <laughs> Have you heard this woman teach before? She may, and you guys, you got to picture this. They call the guards in. They send them out. This big group of guards, they go, and they get there. And you just kind of picture this. Hey, before we arrest him, uh, let's just listen. I mean, he's really famous. This might be the best chance we get. You mind if we listen a minute? No, no, let's go ahead. Yeah, good idea. Let's go ahead. Let's listen. Let's see. <laughs> Hey, 
this is really amazing. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I've never, never heard anything like this. He's like, you ever heard him before? And that's my first time. Yeah, me too. Think we should arrest him? No, let's just wait a couple more minutes. <laughs> Let the guys know. Anyway, psst, wait. Right. Think we should go now? No, I want to hear a little bit more. Let's hear a little more. Pretty soon, they're just so taken in, they're just mesmerized. And so these big, tough guys are like, okay, think we should arrest him? I'm not arresting him. You want to arrest him? <laughs> no, you should do it. You did it last time. No, it's your turn. Come on. You're going to need to arrest him. Like, I'm not sure. He, he, maybe he is the Messiah. I don't want to arrest the Messiah. You want to arrest the Messiah? It's going to look so bad on your resume, man. This is going to be like. <laughs> and so pretty soon they're like, well, I'm not doing it. Well, I'm not doing it. Well, pass the word. Let's go back. And so they come back, and it's like, where is he? Oh, uh, no one's ever spoken like this man has spoken. Really? That's the best you can do? You see? But this was so typical of Jesus. Uh, people were mesmerized by his teaching, weren't they? I mean, they'd come from all over. They'd come from miles and miles around. They'd hang out with him all day long listening to him teach. Sometimes they would stay day after day until they would run out of food risking their own lives. That's why Jesus fed the 5,000. That's why he fed the 4,000. If you remember the story, it's because in the middle of nowhere, they don't have any food, and Jesus is concerned they're going to die if they go back without having any food. They've run out of food. That's why he fed those. And so, so Jesus had this, this uh, amazing uh, uh, teaching ability. And the thing was is that um, part of it was just his message, right? I mean, he just this amazing message of who God was, who they were, this new relationship God's calling him into. God knows the hairs on your head. He's, he's, he's got an amazing plan for your life. So, so part of it was the message, but a large part of it was the way he presented the message. You see, Jesus was so different than the pastors of the day that they were used to. And these were all church people. They go to synagogue every week, but he was so different than, than the pastors of their day. He, he didn't look like them. He didn't teach like them. He didn't follow their, 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 uh, uh, their traditions. Uh, he, just, he was just totally different. And he had an amazing way. He was kind of a master of relevance. Uh, he had an amazing way of taking the truth of God and put it in the language of the people. And so he would tell stories, think with me about this. He would, he would talk to fishermen and say, hey, hey, why don't you follow me and I'll, I'll make you fishers of men. Oh, I get that, you know. Um, he, he wouldn't use the big theological terms and all of that. He just kind of, he just boil it down. Uh, he would talk uh, in a culture that was totally agricultural. He would say, hey, once upon a time, there was a man, and he went out to, to sow, his, uh, sow his field with, with, with seeds. And everyone's like, oh yeah, we've seen that a million times. What's the point, you know. Uh, he says, once upon a time, there, there was a man, and, and he uh, he had 100 sheep, and he lost one. Oh, we know what he does. He goes after them, right? Yeah. So how does that apply to us? Uh, there, there was a woman, and she lost. She had 10 coins, and, and she lost them, part of her dowry. Uh, there, there was a, a rancher, and he separated the, the sheep from the goats. There, there was a father that had a rebellious son. Are we relating now? And, and, and he left, and then he comes back, and, and then he would tell, he got these amazing illustrations like, cut off your hand, you know, very memorable you know, sort of thing. Pluck out your eye. Uh, camels going through eyes of needles. He would talk to an old man and say, the problem with you, you need to be born again. Like, really? What? What are you talking about? I don't get it. Uh, he, he would talk about living, uh, uh, living water and bread of life and the light of the world. You see what I'm saying? Like, Jesus was not complicated. He was colloquial. He was contemporary. He took the message of God. He put it in the language of the people, and people loved him for it. It's like we get it. 
you see? And, and so, so here at Rocky Peak, we believe the message of Jesus is the most important message in all the world, but in every generation, we have to communicate it in the language of the culture and the way that people can get it, that we can relate to it, we understand. Now, one of the, the, the men in the, the New Testament who really got this principle extremely well was the Apostle Paul. And of course, Apostle Paul, one of the great Christ followers, we studied him in the way, our last series, and, and Paul talks about this philosophy of ministry in 1 Corinthians, and he says, uh, he says here's what I do, and, and Paul understood kind of a very important principle of life, is that if you want to influence someone, the more that you're like them, the greater your chance of influencing them, right? You know this, right? Like, like if you're trying to convince someone or persuade someone, the more that they see that you and them have a lot in common, the easier it is to, per, to, to persuade them. And the Apostle Paul understood this, that if people could relate to him, then they, had, they would be more open to his Jesus than if they couldn't relate. And so the Apostle Paul shares his philosophy of ministry, that he would actually alter his approach in sharing Jesus uh, based on the people he was sharing with. So, for example, when he was with very conservative Jewish people, he would kind of present himself one way. When he was with more liberal, wilder Gentile people, he'd present himself a different way. When he was talking to mature Christ followers, he'd talk one way. Talking to immature Christ followers, what he calls weaker brothers, he, he, he would uh, uh, give up some of his freedoms, give up some of his rights in order to identify with them. We talked about this in the last uh, series. And so basically, Paul would never compromise the core message of Jesus, right? But he would, he would alter the way he presented it based on his audience because he understood, if I can relate to you, then I can listen to you and, and, and hear from you better. And so he lays this out for us there on your note sheet, <clears throat> In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is philosophy. <clears throat> and he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. Catch that. I, I altered my approach. To those not having the law, which would be like the Gentiles, I became like one not having the law. So as to win those not having the law. And to the weak, and by weak he means spiritually immature. Remember we learned in Romans he would give up some of his rights or privileges uh, you know, in order to relate to those people. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Now here's the bottom line. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. So Paul says that he would adjust his, his style. So basically, if you want to reach people for Jesus, you need to say, what kind of people are you called to reach? What kind of people do you feel like called to reach? And then you need to, to relate to them in a way that they can hear it and understand it like Jesus did. I mean, that's the idea. Now, here at Rocky Peak, what we really feel God is calling us to do is to reach uh, what I would call contemporary casual, unchurched Southern Californians, which kind of describes most people, right, in this area. Like, in other words, that, that this is who we feel God's calling us to reach, that he's, he's called us to be a church in Southern California. There's traditional churches out there that do things very traditionally, and there's a, and there's a lot of them, you know. But, but we feel like God's calling us to be a church that reaches unchurched people, Southern Californians, casual, contemporary, that's who they are. Now, um, so uh, what I want to do today is I want to talk about this and get real practical. Like what does it look like 
to, to be relevant in our culture today because it takes in everything. It takes in every part of a church uh, from your, your website to your buildings to your, your music to your teaching. I mean, it takes in everything because everything creates an ambiance, right? And so, but today what I want to do is I want to focus in on three specific examples of what it would look like in our context here just to kind of help you understand kind of where we're headed, where we've been. Um, and, and of course, there's many more examples I could give, but I think these, these are three of the most important ones, all right? So let's uh, turn the page there or, you've, or there on your note sheet. You've got a section called Relevance, three specific examples. And the first one I want to use is our weekend teaching. Like, why do we do what we do here? Why, why are we the kind of church we are? Uh, and, and so the first question is, why do we approach our weekend teaching the way we, we do it? Now, um, you've probably figured this out. If you've been here longer than three weeks, you've probably figured this out. That, that we are not uh, what's often called in church circles a seeker-sensitive church. And like in church circles, a seeker-sensitive church is one whose weekend services, their primary target is non-believers, people who've never been to church or, you know, not church, they're, they're not Christ followers. Uh, in a church like that, and there's nothing wrong with being a church like that, by the way, it's just different callings for different churches, but um, in a church like that, uh, the whole service is designed for people who've never been to church. And so, so for example, usually when it comes to time of your teaching, you do Bible light. You, you, don't, you don't teach through the Bible. You don't, you don't kind of dig into the word very much because the theory is people don't, don't know the Bible at all. And they're not really interested or whatever. Um, and when it comes time to worship, usually, typically, you, you, you won't do very many worship songs because the theory is non-believers aren't ready to worship, and so you do more performance-type uh, numbers. And so there's just, uh, and a seeker, so there's a whole different kind of a package or philosophy. Like, again, you know, nothing wrong with it. It's just not who we are. So you probably picked this up. We are not that. That we are a church designed to help followers of Jesus become more like Jesus. That's what we're about. That we want to unleash this movement of passionate Christ followers. And so our weekend services are designed for you to, to grow and to become like Jesus and to follow him. And so that's why our teaching is like, that's why we'll take 45, 50 minutes, an hour, two hours, whatever, uh, to, to teach through, uh, given the week, uh, to teach through the word, right? That's why we'll spend significant time in worship because our whole, God, uh, our whole uh, goal here is to encounter God here on the weekend services. We're going to encounter him in worship. We're going to encounter him in the word. Now, but having said that, I want to explain something. Having said that, we believe it's possible to target believers and yet to do it in such a way that non-believers can come in, catch on, and get it. And that if you're intentional about this, we believe you can do both things. And this is why we work so hard at this. For example, when I'm teaching or Dave or Joel, we all do this. This is why we work so hard at this that we don't assume that you know everything. Like we don't, we don't for example, we're talking about Moses. I might, I might say there's a man in the Old Testament named Moses. Now for some of you, you're going to like, Mike, don't insult my intelligence. Like I know who Moses is. But you have to understand, I'm not really talking to you at that moment. I know that most of you know who Moses is. I'm talking to those people who've never been in church before, never had a Bible. The most, only thing they know about Moses is what? Prince of Egypt. You know, it's like, that's it. That's all that they know. And so that's why we do those sorts of things. Uh, because in everything we do, we want to say to the outsider, you're welcome here. You're one of us. We, we don't want to separate. So, for example, uh, this is why I'll often say, hey, turn your Bibles to the right or the left. I'm not trying to baby you. I'm talking to the people that have never had a Bible in their life, and they don't have a clue, and we're trying to help them out, you see? Uh, this is why I don't use big words when I teach. 
See, a lot of you thought it was because I just didn't know any big words. But this is very intentional. This is why in services, I'll never use theological terms without defining them. I'll never do that. I'll never just throw out terms like justification or sanctification or anthropology or eschatology or uh, harm. To- or what? Okay, I need a definition. Yes, sorry. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's like I won't do that. Why? Because, because language creates barriers, doesn't it? And all of a sudden, if I come in and say, well, uh, there's three views on eschatology, for anyone who's never been sure, a lot of you, like, even for you, are like going, whoa, my eyes just roll back. But anyway, uh, you know, it's like, wow, all of a sudden you've sent a message, you don't belong here. We're the in crowd, you're the, out, you're, you're the outsider, right? Um, and, and so we work really hard to break it down to keep it simple. Here's my core conviction. Is it a core conviction that I have is that most people in Southern California, when they think of church, they think out of date, out of touch, irrelevant, weird, uh, you know, not practical. These are the kinds of images that come to mind. And so, so if we're going to reach these kind of people, we need to break through that. And one of the ways we break through is we just speak the language of the day like Jesus did. We take the truth of God, we put it in the language of people. And here's the thing, and I, I honestly believe this. I believe this is the best way for a church to grow, not only for the new people, but for all of us. And I'll tell you why. The reality is a lot of us have been in church for many, many, many years, and we know all the terminology and all the cliches. But if you pressed us, we could not tell you what they mean. You know, just simple things. Like if I were to say, uh, someone comes up and says, man, I've really been growing a lot. Now, to a non-believer, they say, really? You look old enough. Are you getting taller? That's weird. You got so many, you know. But, you know, it's like, hey, are you growing? You know, I'm really growing a lot. And like, well, really? That's great. Well, what are you, what's happening? Well, I'm just growing. Well, like, like in what way? Well, I don't know. I just like I'm reading my Bible. So that's what it means to grow, to read your Bible. It's like we use terms and we don't really know. And all of a sudden, if I'm teaching, I'm coming along and I say, I don't say, are you growing? I say, are you changing? I've just translated. That's what growth is. You understand this? Growth means change. If you're the same person you were a year ago, you are not growing. You see? See, growth is about change. We, we talk about grace in Christian circles. So we went through the, the, the book of Romans and teaching on Romans. So I was trying to think, how do we say that in the language of today? And you might remember this phrase. I talked about our relationship with God is not based on our performance. Remember that? And the moment you say that, you go, okay, I get it now. It's, it's not, I, I, am, I, am I based on performance or not? We, we talk about things like, do you love God with all your heart? What does that mean? But the moment we translate and say, is God your top priority in your life? You see, now we know. And so, so we all grow. As we break it down, as we do what Jesus did, you take the message of God, you put it in the language of the people. It's the best way for all of us to grow. But it's particularly important for those that come in and have no background. Because typically what happens, they don't expect to understand one thing that's happening up here. That's been their life experience. When they were 12 or 18 or whatever, their whole life in church, it was boring. They didn't get it. They couldn't relate. That's their paradigm. You see, and if we can begin to break that paradigm, we begin to open a way for God to speak in their lives. Okay, so that's the first example, our weekend teaching. Now, number two. Now, number two, I'm going into a dangerous zone here, so let me put my flak jacket on right now. Okay, got my armor on. Number two, we're going to talk about worship style. Wow, it got very quiet in here. 
Now, here's what I want to talk about. I'm not going to talk about worship today, per se. We're going to talk about worship later on in this series. Uh, I want to talk about worship style. And in particular, I'm talking about musical style, right? And so one of the things that we believe is that when it comes to the topic of relevance, if we want to be a church that relates to our culture, one of the most important decisions we make is in the area of music. And the reason is because we're a culture that loves music. It defines us. And nothing will tell a person faster uh, or quicker this place relates or not relates than, than music. It's just the way it is. And so um, I want to start by, um, w- with a quote by Rick Warren. Now, how many of you heard of Rick Warren? Good, good. Right, we haven't heard of Moses, but we know who Rick Warren is. That's good. Uh, yeah, of course, he, he wrote the book, Purpose Driven Life, right? A lot of you probably read it. It's a great book, uh, 25 million copies and so on, uh, sold. Well, he also wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Church, which is a ministry for, for uh, it's a book for ministry leaders, uh, church leaders. And, and I want to be really clear here so I'm not misunderstood. Um, he says, uh, uh, it's basically in this book, he's laying out the philosophy of ministry of Saddleback Church. This is how they do ministry. And, and I think Saddleback's a great church and all, but we are not Saddleback. Uh, I don't feel like we're called to be a purpose-driven church. That's not our model here. And so I'm not quoting it because I'm endorsing a whole book. I think it's a good book and whatever, but I'm not endorsing the whole book. But here's what I'm saying is that, that he has some great insights in there about relating to culture, especially in the area of, of worship and music styles. And so I put a quote there on your note sheet, and it's kind of long, but it's, I, want you, I want you to follow along. It's very profound. He says, the style of music you choose to use in your services will be one of the most critical and controversial can I hear an amen? amen. Okay, good. Uh, decisions you make in the life of, of your church. As a seasoned pastor, I know it's true. Um, it, it may also be uh, the, notice the italics, those are his, the most influential factor in determining who your church reaches for Christ. You must match your music to the kind of people God wants your church to reach. Now, this is a very important thing. In other words, like if you're, if you're starting a church in a traditional area of the Midwest and you're trying to reach traditional people, that's your target, then, he says, then use traditional style church music. If you go to Uganda and you want to reach Ugandans for Jesus, use more African music that will fit in there. If you're in Southern California, you better choose some music that can be heard on the radio, right? Because if you can't find it on the radio, if there's, like, there's nothing we relate to at all, then, then we're, we're off our target. We're not going to reach uh, those people. Now, he goes on. The music you use positions your church in your community. It defines who you are. Once you've decided on the style of music you're going to use in worship, you have set the direction of your church in far more ways than you realize. And boy, this is really true. It will determine, catch this, the kind of people you keep and the kind of people you lose. That's really, really true. Now, then he goes back and he talks about some of the early days at uh, Saddleback and some of the mistakes they made. And he says, not only did I underestimate the power of music when we began Saddleback, I made the mistake of trying to appeal to everybody's taste. You know, some of you have been in churches like that. And, and, and so, so if you read the book, it's hilarious. He talks about they would have, you know, in the same service, they might have like a, a hymn, then they have like a, a chorus, like a praise chorus, and then some contemporary worship, and then maybe a rock piece and a, a jazz piece and, and like country music. You know, it's like, they would just kind of, like you never knew what station you were on, you know. And, of course, everyone wants to just change the station in that case. And uh, he says, we didn't please anybody. We frustrated everybody. 
and you must decide who you're trying to reach and, and then stick with it. And so, and so I, I totally believe it's on the, money, uh, on the mark there. And so we, we are, are feeling God's calling us to reach unchurched, casual, contemporary Southern Californians. And that's why we made the decisions we made to choose this style of music that, that, we're, that we're doing here. Now, let me say this. When you make the style a choice of, of music, you, you're obviously, it's, it's not just, hey, we're going to do contemporary music, but you're also deciding, well, what kind of instrumentation you're going to use. You're also going to be deciding things like volume levels and things like that because certain music is designed to be played certain ways. Uh, you remember back in the old days when, uh, uh, you know, you get like elevator music playing the Beatles, you know, but it's like the elevator Beatle music. And it's like, I'm sure the people, play, you know, playing it in the elevator thought it was very hip. You know, but if you like the Beatles, it's like, what is this? Right? It's not just the, the style. It's like, well, how is it meant to be played? Instrumentation, sound levels, and so on. Now, so, uh, I, I know this whole issue of sound levels is a controversial one. And I know this because you let me know this. <laughs> You're very generous with sharing your heart and your thoughts. And the reality is, we have a lot of people here in Rocky Peak that, man, I, crank it up, get it louder. Why I can't hear it, you know? And, they, and then we have a lot of people like, turn the thing down, you know, it's, it's hurting my ears or whatever. And so we're all over the board. We've got people on both sides of this issue. But in, in reality, I think if you stop and you look at our culture, I, I think you just have to, to kind of admit that our culture in general likes music on the louder side than the softer side. And this is why, like, if you go to Dodger Stadium between uh, Indians, they're going to be they're going to be blaring loud music, right? And so you go, if you go to the Chargers, go Chargers, and, uh, and they play that horrible song from the '80s, you know, San Diego Superchargers. It's really sad, but they play it really loud, and and the stadium's rocking. This is why you, you turn on the National Democratic or, or Republican conventions this year. You know, you got loud music. You go to concerts. You go to, to movie theater. It doesn't matter the venue in our culture. You're going to find loud music and. And the reason is this is the way the culture has been raised now, uh, and, and it's the way that we, we've come to expect it and it's when we enjoy it. And, and I think one of the primary reasons is that it brings energy to a room, and that's why, that's why you know, we, we've come to expect it. Now, uh, having said that, uh, I, I want to be clear on something, is that we want to be responsible here, and, and we don't want to play music at a, a, a level that's going like, to hurt our ears or something. Sometimes people will come up to me and say, well, Mike, it's going to hurt our ears. And it's like, I, I promise you we're not playing it that loud. That uh, we, we are very careful uh, at, uh, and monitor the decibel level uh, of, of the, in fact, for those of you who care, some of you won't care, but for those of you who care, we, we run our sound here at about 90 dB, 90 uh, decibels. We have dB meters back there and, and professionals who know how to handle that sort of thing. And, uh, and that's kind of in the mid-range of uh, kind of contemporary churches. They usually run at kind of 85, 95, something like that. But just to give you some context, this will be some fun. Let me give you some context where 90 dB falls uh, in the world of sound. Uh, let me start with toilets flushing. Um, yeah. Well, it's just kind of, kind of trying to relate. You know, it's like we've all been there, right? We've all been there. Uh, so like a flushing toilet's going to run about 70 dB, Okay. Uh, you stand next to your uh, washing machine at home, you're going to be about 80 dB. Uh, you listen to a French horn, it's going to be somewhere in the 90 to 105 dB. You go to a classical concert, uh, and it's going to be about 100 dB. It's kind of spikes above that, but kind of normal, it's going to be about 100 dB. Uh, you, you turn on, a, you pull out your uh, power saw or your chainsaw, 110 dB. You go to a rock concert, 110 to 120 uh, dB. 
Uh, it's going to spike higher, but that's the normal, 110 to 120. And uh, the, the, the pain threshold, where, well, actually, you'll feel pain in your ears. If, you're, if your ears are kind of your normal, healthy ears, 120 to 130, okay? So that gives you some context. Uh, the way OSHA puts it, <laughs> I can't believe I'm quoting OSHA. <laughs> but uh, OSHA says 90 dB, where we're running, you can run eight hours. Eight hours a day, you're fine, your ears are fine. Okay, so that gives you some context. But having said all of that, I realize that for some of you, that this may still be like, I just don't like it. I don't like the worship style. I don't like it's too loud or whatever. And the thing I would challenge is, is could it be that this might be one of those areas where God might ask you to kind of give up your personal preference in order to reach more people for Christ? Like Paul said, to the Jew, be a Jew, to Gentiles, to Gentiles. You know, J.D. and I were, were talking about this uh, one time, one of our 4,000 times, and, uh, and uh, he was telling me a great story. You know, before J.D. was here at Rocky Peak, he was at a, a church in Texas, and uh, that was a church in transition, in a very traditional church that was becoming more and more contemporary, and they'd, they'd asked him to come be their new worship pastor to kind of help them through that, that transition. And, uh, and so he's trying to decide whether to go. And so he's looking over the list of elders. And they had, you know, the elders in the church and their pictures. And there was one particular elder that stood out to him. He just thought, he just kind of wondered, oh, if I go, how will this go? You know, he was a guy who was in his mid-70s. He's very traditional looking. He was one of the charter members of the church. The church is 50 years old. So he'd been almost 50 years old. So he'd been there for almost 50 years. And, and just, you know, and so Jay just wondered, man, if I go, like, like what? Because you know how this can be controversial stuff, right? And so I was just wondering. So he felt God called him to go, and so he went. And he was just so pleasantly surprised because it turned out, this guy turned out to be one of his biggest supporters. And, and what he would say was he said, you know, he said, uh, I, I don't like the music. He said, but um, he said, I, I've given my whole life to this church. And this church is not about me. This church is about reaching people. He says, I've got all kinds of friends in other churches in this area, and I've watched those churches die one by one because they would refuse to change and relate to this culture. So the other day, I went to a funeral. There was just a very small group of people. I was one of the youngest there, he said, and that church had died. It used to be a vibrant, thriving church. He says, I don't want this church to die after I've gone. I've given my life for this church. I've given my blood for this church. This church exists to reach people. He says, if I like the music, there's something wrong with it. Isn't that great? And after that particular funeral, he came up to JD that weekend and he gave him the hugest bear hug and just held on and said, thank you for what you're doing and thank you for where you're taking us, that I can see this church uh, reaching people, you know, for Christ. And so, and so it's, it's a question, I think, for us, is that this may be one of those areas, like Paul says, it, it may not be our perfect style or, or preference, but if this is what it takes to reach our culture, to relate as Jesus did in the language of the people, are we willing to embrace that? Now, number three, the third area is what I'm calling look and feel. Now, this takes in a lot of ground, um, but every organization, every place has a certain look and feel. Like, like if I say a Walmart, there's a certain vibe that goes with that, right? Now, I'm not saying whether it's good or bad, but there's a definite vibe that goes along. If I say Target, a little different vibe, right? Some of you start wanting to spend money right now, I can tell. Like, Target, oh, oh, where's my wallet? Um, uh, Starbucks, you know, certain, certain, like, certain kind of ethos about Starbucks, right? You expect certain things. Nordstrom, like Home Depot, like every place has a, a look. It's got a feel, and it, and it kind of, uh, it either draws you or repels you. 
and, and it's, it's like everything about it. It's the website. It's the buildings. It's the, the, the people. It's the colors. It's the design, the graphics. It's the whole thing, right? And so when people come to Rocky Peak, everything we do is either saying relevant or irrelevant. It's just, it's just kind of part of, of who we are. Now, we're not going to talk a lot about this today because we're going to talk a lot about it after Easter on one of the weekends we talk about strategy and what does it look like to create a destination place here where people can come and meet Christ. But um, today I want to focus on one aspect of it, and that has to do with kind of the look and feel of our stage presence, kind of our dress code, like how we, we dress here. And I want to address this because over the years, you know, there's people that come and say, Mike, why do we have to be so casual? You know, like, did you know the guy on stage, he's got ripped jeans, you know? Can we take a collection for him or something like that, you know? And I just always want to laugh. It's just like, he's probably paid 125 bucks for those jeans, you know? Uh, it's like, that's not just a rip. That's a rip in the right place with the right... With the right brand, you know, that's, that's an Abercrombie rip. I mean, I'm telling you, it's just an expensive rip. Uh, and so, but, you know, people come and say, so why, why do we have to be so casual? And, and, Mike, we love you, and we love your teaching, and so on. But, but you know, could, could you just do maybe something, you know, to, to look a little bit more like, like a pastor? You know, like, like maybe, you know, like a coat, a tight sport coat, just some shoes. You know, just even some shoes <laughs> would really help. And... And what I want you to understand is that this is really, the way we dress is really part of our strategy. It flows out of this core value of relevance. Because here's what we believe. We believe, like I said earlier, that for most people, coming to church is a foreign experience. Not a church person. For most unchurched people, it is a foreign experience. And their whole image of, of Christians and pastors in church is so negative. They expect it to be boring they expect it to be phony. They expect it to be out of touch. They expect it to be irrelevant. They expect it to be impractical. Like, why would I want, just like those, those people that, we were, that were on the opening video. This is what people expect. And, and here's what I found, is if we can blow through some of those expectations and we can, we can pop and we, we can make a hole in that paradigm, that in that moment, we have a chance of reaching them for Christ. In other words, the people come with a certain paradigm. This is the way Christians, church, and pastors are. If we can blow up that paradigm about us, guess what? It opens the door for them to reconsider Jesus. And I've seen this happen over and over again. I wish you could have been in my house last night. It happens every month. We have this uh, these welcome desserts, brand new people, about 20 people around the room. And you go around the room, and it happens every time. You know the people that God's bringing to Rocky Peak are mostly unchurched people? It's the coolest thing. It's like most of the people coming to Rocky Peak are not transferring from other churches, solid Christians walking with God growing. Most of the people coming are people that are brand new at this, no relationship with Jesus, maybe in a church a few times, maybe a church in 18 years ago or 30 years ago, and, and it's, they're brand new. And so and every month we ask them this question, why are you coming and why do you come back? And I wish you could have sat in that circle last night and walked around the room as person after person. Well, it was so casual. Well, as I came in, it just felt so comfortable. Well, I hate dressing up. It's so nice to really come to church with this. Well, when I saw you with your flip-flops, I said, this is the place for me. Uh, when that band came out, unbelievable, the music, the inner, it was just like person after person, the whole room. It was like an illustration for this whole message, you see? And I believe if we can blow through people's paradigms, if we explode their paradigms of what Christians look like, what church looks like, it will open the door that maybe if I've misjudged Christians, and maybe if I misjudged church, and maybe if I misjudged pastors, maybe I have misjudged Jesus. And in that moment, 
we have a chance for God to speak to them in a new and fresh and compelling way. Now, this is actually a part of Jesus' strategy. And in fact, there on your note sheet, um, I want to point out a verse. It's, it's really an obscure verse. Like, I've never heard a sermon on it or anyone teach on it, but, but I think it's powerful. Uh, Jesus is talking about the religious leaders of his day. And here's how he describes them. It says, as he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law, the spiritual leaders. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marking place. Okay, catch this? He said, the spiritual leaders of his day, they would walk around in flowing robes, expensive, nice clothing. That's the way they would dress. And they wanted to do it. They wanted to be set apart from normal people. You see, they wanted to be identifiable. There's my pastor. Look at him. Look at how he's dressed. They, I'm a spiritual person. I'm dressed a certain way. This is what their goal, you see, was to, to separate themselves from the common people by looking different. I'm God's anointed. I'm God's special thing. And to set the separation up so they would be lifted up. Can I tell you something? That is exactly the opposite of my heart. My heart is when someone comes down here, they look up at me and they say, he doesn't look like a pastor. He looks like me. That is my goal. Because otherwise, what people do is they elevate pastors up here and say, yeah, you love Jesus, you run hard after Jesus, but you're a pastor. I'm a normal person. I'm not, a, I'm not like you. And so that's great for you, but it's not like for me. I want to say, no, 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 no. We are the same. You and me are the same. We are followers of Jesus. We're all called to run after him. I've been given certain gifts of leadership or teaching or whatever to lead this church. That's great. But you and I are the same. And I want everything about me to say that loud and clear, that we are on the same page. I'm not special. I'm not different. I don't wear super clothes. I don't want flowing words. I am just like you so that we can grow together. Does that make sense? Amen. Amen. Now, if I can walk on stage and surprise some people that haven't been to church in 20 years in such a way that it causes them to reevaluate Jesus, then that's what it's all about. And if I wore, had to wear a suit and tie to have the same effect, I would wear a suit and tie. And there are times in my life I've done that. You see, it's not about, it's not about the clothing. It's about the impact, you see, how do we reach our culture in relevant ways? And when Jesus came, he didn't teach like them, like the leaders. He didn't look like them. And there was something about him that was new, fresh, and compelling that people would listen, okay, because he, he was different. Now, let's, let's start to head to wrap this thing up. I want to ask you a couple questions, as I've done every week, of where do you stand, the movement, where do you stand? And so here's question number one. Number one, the first question might seem obvious. It might seem like a no-brainer, but I think we really need to ask it. And it goes like this. Do you want to reach people for Christ? Now you might say, well, of course, I'm a Christian. Of course I want to reach people for Christ. Which and I don't think we can assume this because honestly, sometimes we get so comfortable in our lives, we get so comfortable in our little church and our little church friends and our life group and this whole, you know, our, our kids are safe here and that sort of thing. We forget why we're here. We're here to share Christ. That's why we're left on planet Earth, to make a difference and to draw people to Christ. That's one of the primary reasons we're here. And so it's a legitimate question to say, does your heart burn? Do you want people to come to know Christ? Is that happening in your life? Is that the desire of your life? Number two, here's the second question. This is the harder one. Is are you willing to change? 
The question is, okay, so you want people to come to Christ, but are you willing to change your approach? Are you willing to change your style? Are you willing to change, uh, give up your preferences, your rights, the way you like, and, or if that's what it will take to reach, are you willing to change? And of course, this is a much harder question, isn't it? Uh, do we want people to come to Christ? Yes, but are we willing to change? Are we willing to pay a price? That's a harder question. Change is hard. You know, like I've said, uh, Jesus came, he was so different, and, and the spiritual leaders of the day, they had a hard time with him. Honestly, they did. I mean, like I say, he didn't teach like them, he didn't look like them, didn't dress like them, didn't keep their tradition. They really struggled. And so at one point, they were just having such a t- the toughest time with this. And Jesus said, hey, let me, cl- let me help you out here. Let me tell you a little story. And he gave him this little parable, and it was a parable of the wineskins. Some of you will remember it. And, and it basically went like this. He said, you can't take new wine and put it in old wineskins. Now, the reason is, is that new wine ferments and it expands. And so you take new wine, you put it in new wineskins that have supple leather, and they can still, they still have flexibility. They're flexible. They can change. They can expand with the expanding wine. They, they have the capacity for change. If you take that same new wine, you put it in an old wineskin that's been used before and stretched to its maximum, it's lost its flexibility. It's lost its ability to change. And so what happens is the new wine expands, it blows it out. You lose the wine and you lose the wine skin. And so this was Jesus' way of saying, kind of the moral of the story is, that as we get older, we become less flexible. The longer we walk with God, the less open we are to change. And the sad thing is, he said, you can find yourself in a place where God is on the move and you're going to miss it because you're not ready to move with it. You can't change anymore. You see, this is the danger. And so the question is, as a church, are we willing to change if that's what's required to reach our generation for Christ? Now, let's go into the future. We're going to uh, uh, turn the lights down. I'd ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to I'm going to take you to the future. It was exciting last night as we went around the circle sharing. There was one girl there. She's only been to church three times, including last night. We asked her why she came the first time and why she came back. She said, well, I came the first week of this new series. At the end, you, you painted a picture of the future about people coming, parking in that back parking lot, walking in. So I almost about fell over. That was my story. Every step of the, the future that you described was my story. And I sense God speaking to me and saying, this is the place for you. And so I want to take you to the future again today. I want to take you to the future, to a time in the future when I, when I can see, as I look at the future, hundreds, perhaps thousands of people coming to Christ, people that are unchurched, people that haven't been to church in years. And, and some of them are going to come because you invite them. You're going to be so excited about God's doing here. You're going to invite them. You've got to come and see. This is a church like unlike you've ever experienced. It's going to, it's going to blow your mind. It's going to break your expectations. you just got to check it out. Others are going to come because they just find us on the website or the, the word's out that there's a, there's a movement at Rocky Peak, that God's on the move, and, and people are just going to be hungry for God, and they're going to hear about it, and they're just going to come. And when they come, it's going to be scary for them because they haven't been to church ever or maybe not in 20 years. And and so they don't know what to expect, and they're kind of afraid. They don't know where to park, and they don't know, they don't know how to dress, and they don't know what to do, and, and they're just afraid they'll be embarrassed as they come through the front doors or 
they're, they're relieved because they look out and they see the greeters. It's just, everyone's dressed casually and, and they're already beginning to feel more at home. And as they come in and people are hugging and smiling and it's just a friendly place and, and, and it's so casual and it's like, oh good, I'm not, I'm not underdressed. And, and so they, they take their program and they find their seat and about that time, the, a countdown clock is going to start on, on the front screens and, and the band's going to come out. They're going to do a pre-service number like they do today. And they're going to begin to sit back and relax and just enjoy the music. This is not what they expected. And, and, then, and then the worship begins and everyone stands up. And there's like this big whoosh as everyone stands up and enters into worship. And the band starts to play and the energy in the room is unbelievable. They don't even have words to begin to, exper- to describe what they're experiencing. By the second song, there's tears coming down their cheek. They, don't, they can't even put it into words. What they're experiencing is the presence of God, yet they just don't have language. By the time the worship done, everything they've, they've thought about church has been challenged. And now it's time for the pastor to come up and speak, and so they're waiting for the guy in the suit and tie and the big black Bible. And all of a sudden, this dude comes up in, in jeans and a t-shirt and sandals, and they're wondering where the real pastor is, and then it turns out he's the real pastor and he begins to teach and it's unlike anything they've heard. They actually understand him. They've only been to church when they were younger but they never understood and it never made any sense and it was boring but they find themselves just kind of locking in. They're, they're understanding everything. He tells stories. It's like he's having a conversation. It's making sense. It's applying to life. They, they realize that they're reaching inside their program pulling out the note sheet that originally they ignored. They, there's a couple things they want to write down. And in that moment, everything they've believed about church and everything they believed about Christians and everything they believed about pastors, it's like it's suddenly imploding. It's just it's exploding from the inside out. And in that moment and in that space, the Holy Spirit is beginning to speak to them and say, if you've so misjudged my people and my church and my leaders, maybe you've misjudged me. And in that moment, their journey is going to begin, and it's just a matter of time before they cross the line. They're entering the pool of baptism. They're giving their life to Christ, and they've joined us in the movement.